Hey guys, welcome back to The Courier Weekly. I'm Danny Giacopelli, Courier's Editorial Director. Pivoting a small business to survive is super difficult, and it often doesn't work. But sometimes it ends up building a more resilient company in the long run. This week we're talking about launching a company, growing a company, and then pivoting a company, and the tons of lessons learned along the way. We're with Ken Tamita, the co-founder of Grove Made, a business based in Portland, Oregon, with a massive cult following. GroveMade makes everything from laptop stands and notebooks to wall shelves and coasters, all locally in Portland. But they started by making iPhone cases way back in 2009, when that was still a novelty. As Ken tells it, the decade since then has been one of huge ups and downs, big successes, and then epic fails, and almost running out of cash and going under. So sit back to hear the whole story right now. Here's Ken. In the beginning, after a meandering path, Somehow I ended up as an independent furniture maker. I was designing and making custom furniture, one-off pieces. That career was a lot of fun, but also really challenging around 2009, right? That's when the recession hit and construction in particular got hit really hard. But I had moved into a new wood shop and by total chance, there was this really interesting dude that lived across the street in this really beat up house. So imagine this house that's surrounded by industrial buildings. Those holdovers, sometimes you find these little rundown houses. You called it the Fight Club house. Exactly, exactly. That's what it looked like. There was this guy, Joe Mansfield, who was living there with a bunch of his friends. And what was really bizarre is he was running a laser business out of one of the bedrooms. Immediately, I was excited. We moved to this industrial area. It's kind of lifeless. And he was really excited, too, because all the other businesses were like vacuum repair places, you know? So we became instant friends. And for a couple of years, I was running my business. He was running his. And literally every day, we'd hang out, jam on ideas. We'd throw this football, uh, which we still have around on the street, figuratively and literally tossing ideas back and forth. And, you know, most of the time, it was just talking and fun. And we'd go back to work. But uh, he had this idea. He really thought the iPhone was going to go big. I didn't, which is really funny. Like, I remember using the first <laughs> iPhone. I was trying to call somebody and trying to use the touch screen to dial a phone number. Like I, I couldn't get it. It kept on pushing the wrong buttons. I was like, this is never going to take off, <laughs> which obviously I was very wrong. I think I still have mine. If not the first, then maybe the second one. But it, yeah, it's just like a completely different beast from what you have now. I mean, I have the 11 Pro now. It's just like a different machine. So he was kind of like the visionary guy and I was like the craftsman, if you really want to like put us in boxes. He kept talking about how the iPhone's going to be huge. And when the iPhone 3 came out, he was pushing out even more. He's like, this is big, guys. He's like, we should do something for this iPhone. He really wanted to do a uh, wooden case, which only one other company had been doing. And he uh, realized that they weren't really at scale. It was really expensive and fragile. What he wanted to do was combine it with his new business idea. So about a year prior, he had started a business, laser engraving moleskins. And that had pivoted to laser engraving and leather covers for moleskins. But it was this whole model of putting artist work on creative tools that people use. He wanted to put laser engraved art on a wood iPhone case. And he looked around for all these people to build it for him. And factories and nobody wanted to do it they were scared i was kind of starting to get bored with my career actually it was uh plateauing i was like hey let's do it together i want to take on that challenge both of us were kind of at the stage where we had started businesses that were moderately successful we had a uh, very little fear i realize now from being naive we didn't know we don't know that's classic i bought a cnc milling machine and uh, we hired this guy, Chris Rizzo, is a consultant to teach us how to use it. We went on this adventure to try to make a wood case for the iPhone 3. And these machines are like gigantic, complex machines, right? Yeah, they're about $75,000 US. 
nothing like the work I had done. I knew traditional woodworking and this is computers, machining, programming. We definitely wouldn't have the courage if we didn't find that right person to teach us. So this guy, Chris Rizzo, was really instrumental. He was kind of a go-getter and he really encouraged us that we could do it where everybody else is kind of shying away from the challenge. I think most people, most businesses, they do their thing, right? And they don't want to do really hard things because it's hard to make it doing that really hard things. But some people think a little differently, right? So we met the right guy and we started developing this thing. It took about nine months to develop the first iPhone 3 case. And do you remember it was round? Apple uses really weird geometry. So one of the key mistakes we made is instead of having it 3D scanned, we tried to kind of measure it with calipers and try to get something that friction fit, which took forever. So nine months in, we finally developed this case. And do you remember when uh, the Apple engineer lost an iPhone 4 at a bar? So this is back in the day when like leaks never happened at Apple or Steve Jobs was ruling with an iron fist. And that was a big deal back then. This is 2010. And basically what happened is the day we launched our iPhone 3 case, that hit the news and nobody cared about iPhone 3s. Everybody's thinking about iPhone 4s. Literally the same day you launched your website. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So like epic fail, basically. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that meeting where you guys realized what just happened. Yeah, it was a terrible feeling, man. Our product was a flop. Turned out to be kind of a blessing in disguise because we had no idea what we were doing. And the case we had designed was almost impossible to make. And we probably would have lost money on each unit. So we wouldn't be talking today if that hadn't failed because I would have gone bankrupt 10 years ago. We sulked for a day or so, but then we turned it around like, hey, how can you turn this into opportunity? Well, now we know what the iPhone 4 looks like. So we started engineering case for the iPhone 4. And when the iPhone 4 came out, boom, we had a product. We had made a physical prototype based off what we thought it was. But of course, we didn't have the actual phone, so we didn't know if it fit. But we Photoshopped an iPhone 4 in. And we put it online. And back in the day, that was kind of revolutionary. This is pre-Kickstarter. And people didn't sell things that didn't exist, which we just did. We just went for it. And it blew up. Right time, right place. We got on a couple big blogs like Gizmodo, and it just blew up overnight to thousands of orders. How are you able to meet that demand? Do you have to bring in some more resources for production? Okay, the first step was we didn't have a product, a functioning product. So I remember I was in line to buy an iPhone just like everyone else. And my phone was set to give an alert every time we got a sale because we get like two a day. And then it was just going bing, 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 bing. And at first it was exciting and then it started picking up pace to where it was like, oh no. Like, what have we done? Wait, and you haven't even gotten your hands on the actual phone yet. Yeah, exactly. One thing people always ask is, hey, do the phone makers give you the specs? And the answer is no for Apple. They don't even give it to the huge companies. So all these case companies, they're like getting the phone as soon as possible, going back to the prototyping shop, making tweaks to make sure it fits. Because Apple wants you to buy from Apple itself. Exactly, exactly. They have a, what do you call it? Near monopoly market edge. That's a different conversation. (laughs) Certainly they have power there. Yeah, that was really intimidating, selling thousands and not having a product. That was the most stressed out I've ever been in my life. So every night I woke up probably at seven, got to work. We'd work all day and past midnight every day until we figured this thing out. And there were unforeseen challenges, technical issues. And also I had never done this before. (laughs) It's not a great time to learn. So we had thousands of customers waiting and the pressure was on us to deliver. And we did pull it off. We did figure the case out. And then challenge two is what you just mentioned. How do we produce these? Because we were the manufacturer. And I had no experience in manufacturing at scale. I was used to making things one at a time. I had never managed anyone besides one employee. So that was extremely challenging in a different way. More on the culture, HR management side, which is 
a big deal once the company starts scaling. So suddenly we had to have 20 to 30 people and we were hiring like crazy friends of friends. We hired my friend's brother who went to Reed College and then suddenly we were hiring all his friends. So we had all these Reed College kids. <laughs> to do what though? To do production. That's where Steve Jobs dropped out of actually. Oh, did he? It's like a super hippie place, right? There's quite a lot of like old school hippies. It's exactly the stereotype, the students too. So we had these really smart kids just <laughs> in our like factory basically, our mini factory trying to figure out how to make this. It was pretty painful for a couple of years. We had to eventually hire a professional manager that really helped out an ops person with real experience and he helped get our company functioning instead of a helter skelter every day and a couple of years later you decided to kind of pivot the company away from just those cases and become what you are now which is you know a home office goods company among other things right yeah yeah so luckily joe and i were we both saw that we were riding on the shoulders of apple and this business model was really flawed we were tied to somebody else's product. So the whole time, the business plan was not to become a case company. It was, hey, let's use this to catapult us to some sort of scale where we can do whatever we want and make cool stuff and it'll sell. It turned out to be much harder to do that than we thought, but that was the vision. So we already knew that we weren't going to stay in cases. So about 2012 to 2014, uh, the case business has really taken off uh, worldwide. Everybody's jumping in. Everybody's telling us, why aren't you an Android? Why aren't you should be doing Android? We didn't. Instead, we started playing around with other vertical markets. So in 2014, we made a huge pivot to be, instead of this company that's all about iPhone cases with artwork on them, we got rid of the artwork, which was 85% of our sales, completely one day, and then pivoted to, hey, let's be about product. We're going to become a product company. Really exciting moment. If you looked at our Facebook page, you'd think we we're going out of business. Everybody was really angry all our current customers because we were completely shifting identity. But it was the right move. The case business became really commoditized. You can buy wood iPhone cases that are laser engraved in the mall now. We made a very good move to get a head start on pivoting. So for a couple of years, we just threw mud on the wall and tried a bunch of different product genres. The first one we did was our desk collection. We designed this monitor stand and designed a collection on it, put it online, it blew up. We did at Everyday Carry we did a kind of an entryway, so like home products, like almost furniture. We did a tabletop, so plates, bowls, dishes, cups, that kind of thing. And you were just making these products because you thought that people wanted them or were people asking for these things? It really more started from realizing our business model was flawed and we were desperate to get out of it. Or not quite desperate yet because the money is still coming in from iPhone. We knew we had to get out of it. So we didn't really check to see if people wanted these things, which is a huge mistake. This whole time, Joe and I were still in solopreneur mode where we were making stuff that we liked, which is really simple, pure, and it has some good merits, right? That's our business. We make some things we like, okay? And you can build a business around your personality. However, reality hit us in the face because we made all these beautiful products that we loved. Like tabletop is amazing. I still use it in my house. Total failure. There was no market for it. It was too much of a leap for our customer base. Things that are really obvious to me now, just about anybody that has any kind of business knowledge. Jumping into these other product genres is almost like starting a new business. There is very little advantage to having this existing customer base if it wasn't aligned. So a lot of those failed. And basically, the next three or four years was, was this race against time where iPhone case sales are declining. And some of the new things we tried are working and growing, but they're really small, right? Because they're just starting. So we're like trying to start these other things and trying to get them to grow fast enough to overcome the really speedy decline of the iPhone. And there were some painful years in there where the timing wasn't quite right, where we knew we had a future, 
but our revenue is just diving from an iPhone case. And, you know, we almost lost the business in 2016. We were like inches away kind of level from running out of cash. Did you take out a last minute loan or something like that? Or you just managed to make enough sales to survive? Well, what was really painful about those mistakes or the unfortunate timing is uh, we were losing gobloads of money and cash went to zero. But I had about 165K in credit card credit that we could borrow from. So we were borrowing from that. And then we had a line of credit that was 200K or so. So we were borrowing against all that and got to very little liquidity left. And the way we turned the company around, unfortunately, it was to cut costs. The reason we lost so much money is we were really hell-bent on not laying people off. We were trying to grow out of it with more sales, and we blew a ton of money on marketing, almost panicking. Let's do this, let's do this, let's do this, let's just increase our sales. Most of it failed, and it made us bleed even faster, right? Eventually, it got to the point where I got some really good advice from a mentor who said, you know what, you just got to stop losing money. Like when you're losing that much money, it's almost impossible to think with a clear head, to think strategically, to make good decisions. You got to just get the company structured where you're not losing money. So that's what we did. We had to lay off half the team. And that was a big surprise for everyone, which is a huge failure on my part. People should know that stuff's coming. You know, I think it's inevitable in business sometimes, but there's a way to do it. Being rookies, we didn't really do it that well. So it was a rough time, uh, both on the people side and financially. But you know what? We got the company to where it wasn't losing money. We, we, we just shrank. And then slowly we rebuilt. And you know, last year we became pretty close size to what, what we used to be but with very little iPhone case. And then this year, about four months ago, we sold our last iPhone case. We just cut it off, which is an amazing feeling to completely pivot our business to uh, workspace, which is what we're focused on now. A symbolic moment, I guess, for you after a decade of making them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously right now, during COVID, everybody's, most people who can are working from home. So how has that affected you? Have you had to ramp up production again, hire more people in? So for us, last year, I started feeling pretty good about where our business is going. We were a really niche company in an area that people were neglecting. And that was kind of a, a deliberate strategic decision on our part to really focus on home office users. Basically, everybody else is ignoring it because it was a really small market. And most of the money in that world is in contract, actually. It's in a business sales where you might sell like 300 desks to Facebook or something like that. So that's where all the big money goes. And we were feeling pretty good about slow and steady growth. But COVID hit. And temporarily, we're seeing a pretty big spike in sales. But overall, I think it's more of a threat to our business because suddenly it's the same game again where we're in a shark-infested waters. You know, tons of new companies are launching. You know, offering standing desks. You know, desk accessories. Exactly. So everybody else is pivoting into what we were doing, and we were pretty much alone in that position. So over the long haul, it's going to be get really competitive and challenging. But temporarily, yeah, we're seeing a pretty big surge in demand. And challenge became, how do we produce all these? We did something I thought would never happen. It never even crossed my mind. And I really doubt it's taught in business schools is where our sales are going skyrocketing. And we were laying people off for COVID safety because we do manufacturing and we have to watch out for the safety of our team, right? And we're always going to air a little bit more conservative because that's kind of our culture. It's people first. So I've ne I never thought that scenario would happen where our sales are going up so much and then we're laying off like four people. It's like, what? How does that happen? And I imagine you're in an industry where, you know, people can't produce and manufacture in their homes, right? I mean, they have to be at a physical facility. So now the challenge was, okay, first, first level challenge is supply chain was totally disrupted. Companies that are providing raw materials for us, they were either shut down from uh, government orders or whatever. And international too. We get supplies from a few things from China, a few things from Portugal, further out in our supply chain. Those got really disrupted. So that was challenge one. And challenge two is how do we scale to meet demand if we can't add people? So we kept our 
team number at a certain number based on kind of the square footage of our building and what I think is reasonably safe. And then we'd have to just deal with that limitation. So that meant pivoting to outsourcing a lot more, which we actually aren't very good at historically because we're a manufacturer. So we're used to working really vertically integrated and that's how everything runs. So suddenly when we have to outsource things, it's clunky. Basically, we enjoyed all these advantages of being vertically integrated. So when suddenly you have to outsource, we're like everybody else. It's hard, the communication, the precision of manufacturing drawings and you have to get things right and the testing and all that stuff. It's usually we just go and everybody's right here in this building and we can adapt on the fly. We had to kind of change personalities as a business. So we're in the middle of that still. We're still kind of working on shifting the business model a little bit where we can scale without adding people in our facility. It's a fun challenge. And it seems like, you know, you really are a, a small little community in that on your website, you have a, a kind of a lovely like day in the life, almost walk through your facility and your office, meeting various people in their rooms and what they do and how everybody's skilled at different things, right? It's not, you're not running like a giant company. It's quite a close knit community. Yeah. Even now we have 21 people, I think. What about um, not taking on any investment? You know, you've grown this thing without taking on venture capital. So what are the advantages and disadvantages of that? So for us, for Joe and I, and then uh, I've since bought Joe out. So for myself now, it's almost not really a choice because it conflicts with why we started the company to begin with, why we show up every day. The reason our company is so funky and weird and produces interesting products is because it goes all the way back to why we're here, right? So we started out wanting to have fun. That's why we go to work every day, enjoying what we do. And getting big is not the goal. So first of all, there's that. But the biggest disadvantage is really we have to be profitable. We have to grow with our own profits, which means it's going to be slow. But to us, we don't really think about it as a disadvantage. We think of it more as an advantage. Sure. If you can do it, I'm sure most business owners would do that, right? I mean, if you can make it happen, why give away equity when you can grow a business with your own revenue? Really, it's about control and having the interests aligned. So right now, since I own 100% of the company, there is no conflict on alignment between owners. Inevitably, if you have investors, they deserve a return. That's the point. Sometimes that's not the priority here. What would we do if we had somebody that was their priority? There would be tension there and it would affect our decisions. So I think it's a huge advantage strategically, but in a kind of a subtle way, because it allows us to take unique positions, actually have limited potential. So the way we position ourselves in the market, if somebody wanted huge returns, they wouldn't allow this because we're going after these really small niches. So we can be really good at providing products to a really specific segment. But it's limited, right? Because we're so focused. Somebody else, if you had 100x aspirations, they'd be like, no, 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 we got to go into all these. We might be able to with their funds, but it also introduces a situation where you're not differentiated. And obviously, uh, the risks go up. And I think fundamentally, the way, especially venture capital works, they expect that and they expect companies to fail. So suddenly, you know, the possibility of our company just disappearing someday just skyrockets, right? Yeah, you're just one in a large portfolio of companies and you might be one of the bets that wins or one of the ones that just, eh, we'll write it off. And the trade-off isn't worth it to us, nor interesting. I'm happy. I love my job. Our company is a great company for the people that are here. And sometimes I do feel like we need to be a little bit bigger because there can be challenges and financially when you're at an awkward size. But we don't have aspirations to be gigantic. We want to have a strong company where we can make great products and have a team that enjoys their work and have a strong business model that's, you know, we need to be profitable, but we don't need to be big. And your customers are really obsessed with what you make too. I mean, what advice would you give to founders of new businesses who are trying to foster that sort of, you know, customer loyalty? I think it's just differentiation. For a while, I think you could do that with brand. 
but now everybody has strong brands. So I think it's going to shift back to product. It's got to have the compelling product that people will care about. That sounds overly simplified, but people lose sight of that sometimes. Do you think product is harder than brand? Eh, it's different. It's a different animal. For us, it comes much more naturally because we're product people and we, we love it. But yeah, just designing something that people actually want, which we failed at before, right? When we were just making things we wanted, that didn't work out. So people have to actually want it. And it's got to be compelling in a way that the, it's memorable to them, that they're not comparing between like seven things on Amazon. And then you got to be able to make it and produce it in a way that's sustainable for the business. And just looking to the next few months for Grove Made, I mean, what's coming up ahead? What's keeping you up at night and what's making you um, excited about the coming months? Well, we're growing. It's a nice problem to have. So figuring out how to do that in a healthy way so we don't get upside down in terms of cash flow. Right now, because of COVID, we've hit the gas pedal on production capacity. And now it's some of the other departments are out of sync. So that's what I'm thinking about a lot is how can we get back to smooth, you know, where the business is running smooth the way it should be instead of everything is helter-skelter. We call that wartime and you can't be in wartime forever. It's not healthy for the staff or for the business. And that's it this week. As always, if you've got any questions, just get me at daniel at couriermedia.co. The Courier Weekly is back again next Friday. Thanks for tuning in.